are listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and today we are having a very special podcast. We're sitting here with Mr. Martin Page, and we're going to talk about Hotel of the Two Worlds, his latest album. Martin, it's good to see you, brother. And it's great to see you as well, Mike. It's been a, it's been a while. I haven't seen you much this summer. We've just been doing different things. Uh, absolutely. We've, uh, we've missed each other for a couple of months, but I must say, you look exactly the same as when I last saw you. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Let's just, let's just start right in on the, uh, on the very first song. So here we go. So, Paige, the very first, the very first song, "Strong." I mean, this is about as classic of a Martin Page album, and I really love the way it kind of sets the table for the whole album, and and just the your rhythm and your melody and and the lyrics. Um, tell us a little bit about this song and about what you were thinking. Well, you know, Mike, uh, it's uh, it really did turn into one of those songs that I thought um, it's going to start the record. It, it felt like it was the uh, the theme of the whole album. I'd been building this song for quite a time, and um, I wasn't sure if it actually um, w- was totally right for this record. But then I was able to play it to a few people, and, and my manager Diane told me that she thought it would be very strong to start the record with this kind of emotion because the whole record had a a kind of funk feel to it, which was turning into a kind of um, retro southern funk feel. And um, I want, in a way, I was I thought I was going to start the record on the funk vibe, but then um, over time, this feel, this mood, seemed to be just right to start Hotel off with. You know, one of the great things I like about this song is, for people who know your music, it made this album very approachable because it started it off and you're like, okay, this is this is kind of familiar. It's new mm-hmm. and yet kind of familiar, especially yeah. knowing where the album was going to go. Yeah. Um, did you were you thinking about that as you were recording this and as you were writing the piece, or were you just like, it's a strange thing, Mike. You know, it's um, when I'm writing songs, I'm I'm not really sh- in a in a in a mood where I know where, where things are going to go. It's it's actually very instinctive. This song, you know, it was it came out of a out of a jam again. Most of my songs turn out of experimentation, and uh, all of a sudden, I realized that I had something quite harmonically that was was strong. I mean, it goes through quite a few key changes, and I thought it had a kind of theatrical feel to it. Um, and over time, as I always do, I play the songs in the car, and I just thought there is something very emotional about this. Right. And I jam my lyrics, I jam uh, vocals, and suddenly the word strong appeared, and I thought I had something in my pocket here. This was quite a strong song. Well, let's talk about the key changes. That's one of the things I wanted to bring up. <laughs> there's a lot of them. I know. There. Wait, there's like five key changes on this? Thing? I didn't realize until I finished it I, uh, that I, it had gone through many... Um, twists and turns and I was writing down the chords so that I could play the bass to the song and I thought my goodness it seems to have gone through five modulations I don't think I've ever done that before (laughs) what's amazing is this song really shows um, how musical you are I mean to do five key changes and it not to sound like a hot mess (laughs) I'm not sure it's good to do five key changes but but the other thing that I also noticed is um, it's one of the things that I that I I always say about your songwriting is is you're very patient and you let things kind of Mm you know, kind of unravel just in a very natural progression, especially 
where the song starts and then it kind of goes and keeps pushing yeah. and pushing through key changes through key change and and kind of ends on this really um uplifting mm-hmm. um almost uh you know uh, church-like you yeah. know anthem yeah. end on this thing and um were you, did you do that on purpose for you you know I'm, i think I've said before in the past, my heritage has been um, English churches and hymnal music, and I'm a great fan of choral music. And I think subconsciously, when I write, I'm always trying to reach a kind of emotional place with the chords. It really comes down to the chords. Um, and this song, but it, you know, it's between. It's it's got a major feel, but it's it's touching minor. Even on the intro, it's it's sort of a bass note is sustaining while two chords are moving across it, which make, gives it a real. I think it's A flat with a B flat minor, a, a plant, you know, crossing across a B flat bass, and it gives you a real feeling of, of the church to me uh, and uh, a suspension, a suspension of uh, of of mood. It's not really happy. It's not really sad. It's right in the middle, and uh, I think this song has an uplifting feel to it but you have to it's got a few journeys that you take before you can get that kind of sense which i think a lot of hymns do a lot of church right. church music has, right. has a beautiful resolve at, right. the, at the end of a journey and you know it has such a lovely bass and it has such a b- bottom it, it really yeah. the song is just as strong as the lyric it really is well thank you mike i really appreciate that yeah it's just a, just the way it ends is just really really I must say, they're trying to sing through five keys. You do need extremely tight trousers to achieve this. <laughs> Strong trousers to achieve this. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's move on to the next one, um, which... For a lot of people, it's it's this is where it's going to be like. Hmm? This, is, this is this is a bit like Monty Python. Now for something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> about this direction you're going and and it's i I think it's amazing i think it's great i love what you do with your voice and uh it just has some good old soul a little bit of funk tell us tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you started going this direction well this is interesting because i i'd never really understood the blues deeply and um i went through about a year of really going back in time and studying american blues and um i i didn't i was never really a a fan of the blues. Not, I didn't really understand it, I think. Um, I grew up a, a, in the pop world um, with the Beatles and uh, Genesis and progressive music. So the blues to me was very, very distant, although I knew I had a love of R&B and soul music. So I went on this kind of journey of studying very, very early recordings of um, American music, right back to the roots, to, um, to the slavery period when recording first came um, into the plantations, and I listened to some of this really raw recording right from the beginning of really the time, um, just after the Civil War, right. and, I, and I was so moved by the spirit of it. I remember you playing a few pieces yeah. for me, and, and it was like a, a it, my head just opened up, and I these old recordings made me hear James Brown made me hear all the pop records that I'd loved and bought without really knowing where it had come from. So these bands that I love, like Parliament, Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind & Fire, suddenly I heard 
these bands that their heritage totally came from blues um, and R&B. I just made this connection and I couldn't stop studying it. I just couldn't. I, I went deeper and deeper and deeper. And then all of a sudden, these songs, I think anything that I'm into, anything I'm reading, anything that I lose myself in, it shows up in the material. And... I've always had a love of R&B and I didn't even realize myself that a lot of the songs I'd written with Go West with Robbie Robertson even really it was my love of black music that allowed me to get into those rooms and work with those people so Love Resurrection it was a, a, the, the real story of this I was studying the blues listening to all this old music I was led in the bath and I was playing my iPod and on came some great Motown and I thought damn it I really want to write a song that has a fantastic um, spirit about it like Marvin Gaye meeting James, James Brown meeting you know um, Parliament and so I went downstairs and just played the guitar And I played the guitar like I'd never really <laughs> played before. Um, and suddenly this song appeared. And I was really trying to get in, con in touch with, really, um, something that was in me, but I wasn't really totally aware of it. And that's where a lot of the songs on this record came from. I mean, just, like, the background vocals on this are... <laughs> I mean, how much fun did you have? Oh, I, had, I had a lot of fun with this. And, and the lead vocal was... Uh, You know, I, uh, I recorded it totally dry, put mass compression on it, and just went for it late at night. And really, the, the guide vocal, again, became the lead vocal. Yeah. It didn't hurt your voice or your throat or anything, right? I mean, you were really... What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, you know, I've, I didn't realize I could uh, really get into this space before. I just, I think it was because I'd heard so much great, great, great blues music, which I didn't appreciate. And I thought, um, let's have a go at this. And it was great fun. And um, Love Resurrection came out of that. Well, before I, I start the next song, I just want to talk a little bit about the backstory. The song is Golden, the mm. one you wrote for, for Mike Shipley. Yeah. And that was, um, I'll never forget the uh, the phone conversation I had with you, because I remember calling you up and saying, uh, Martin, did you hear that, you know, about Mike Shipley passing away? And I just remember the silence that was on your end, just the, the just the, stunned silence that you had um, let's talk a little bit about Golden and what motivated you to to write the song and, and how the song came to you. Well that moment when you called me Mike, I mean like uh, you know time stood still I was, I was very very close to Mike I'd worked with Mike um, in England on my first band Qfield and we'd struck up a great friendship and after I moved to America Mike came to America and did some incredible engineering sessions um, And he got involved with um, my first album in the House of Stone and Light. And he even stayed with me all, all the way through to do um, Josh Groban's uh, track, Me Morena. I had a real affinity with Mike. We understood each other. And um, I was literally stunned. I mean, I th it's the first time I've lost anybody who <clears throat> is around my age and I and I'd grew up with in, a, in many ways. So... Um, It really knocked me over. And the only way really that I could deal with it when the reality came through was I I had to go and into the studio and do what I always do when I'm looking to heal myself, and that is to get near music and art. And uh, I didn't think about writing a song for him. I thought about him 
and I went to the keyboard and uh, his influences, his deep influences, because we talked um, quite intimately a, a lot about what we loved, was very much the same in the sense of atmosphere. Although he was known for rock music and Def Leppard, we loved the Blue Nile, Prefab Sprout, Cocktoo Twins, a lot of this atmospheric English music. And he'd done some brilliant work with Tom Dolby on Prefab Sprout. So when I went into the room, still in this kind of haze, I um, got a sound on the keyboard, um, set a, a mid-tempo, walking tempo, 100 beats per minute. Everything had to be in the middle. Everything had to just be smooth, and I was thinking of him. I was thinking of him and what he loved, and what we, we what we both loved in music. And I let my hands fall on the keyboards. I can't tell you the chords I played, um, because I just flowed with emotion. Um, there was no plan for this song to even be on the album. I was trying to heal myself and trying to understand something. You know that a young man my age had had, had gone, and I. I really felt like I was going to work with him again. So it was incredibly um, strange time uh, for me to, to deal with somebody I'd done my seminal work with. I mean, he did Dancing in Heaven, my first hit, that brought me to America. He did In, in the House of Stone and Light, and that's why I sing the, 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 the lyrics to In the House of Stone and Light at the end of the song. And I mentioned Shape the Invisible because that was the first song he mixed on my album with me. So, um, and why the song is called Golden was the last time we worked together. He'd mixed Me Morena for me for Josh Groban. It didn't work in digital, so we went, we had to go back into a major studio and do it on analog tape. And he didn't really want to do that, but he did it. And at the end of the session, I said, was that okay, Mike? Did, did Were you happy with it? He said, it was golden, mate. It was golden. And my thrill was that he was happy working in a format that he was that he'd worked in years ago but wasn't doing at that time so i knew he was satisfied so um it, it, always, it sounds like it sounds like everything's preconceived but as a lot of songs were on this record um golden happened ever so ever so quick and i, I know people will say that this is quite un, unbelievable to hear but after you'd spoken to me on the phone mike Within about five hours, I was in the studio and I was I was writing this song. And I didn't plan it to be on the record. It was just as it formed. I didn't even think it had a chorus, a middle eight, a verse. I really didn't think it... I, it was a, an expression from to, to make myself get through a day. And then I realized that it should be on the record. Um, uh, it just... And I pushed it right up towards the front because it was important to me. Let's play a little bit of it.
out to me especially the first time i remember the first time you played this for me it it blew me away i was just amazed i mean and not only because of the story that's behind it but also it's just so musical and and the the little guitar riff at the beginning you know was just brilliant and also i noticed in the chorus you do something really unusual with the harmony it almost sounds it's like a little bit of a wail in that lower harmony. There's just just a little bit of sadness I'm sensing in there. I mean, were you were you just letting it happen, or any uh, the- Mike? I was lost. You know, I mean, the vocals on that towards the end, um, I was wailing. You know, um, the only thing that came to mind was, you know, the great vocals by Van Morrison when he when you had the feeling when you listen to Van Morrison that he's in a, on another planet, and I I let myself go. Um, and I was, I was screaming. I was a little bit angry that I'd lost him, you know. And, um, you know, a lot of the lyrics came came out of my mouth at that time, you know, about heaven had broken open. It was because, you know, he'd done dancing in heaven. Now, he'd broken my career open with his... And he really was a wizard of sound. Um, I was very lucky to work with some great engineers in America. Um, very lucky. But Mike and I had a, a sensitivity together. I could mention things to him like, you know, make this sound like Bebop Deluxe, make this sound like Ultravox. And he, he had the same record collection. So even as I wrote the verse, it came out, it, it started off that he knocked on my door in his blue Volkswagen and we went to Battery Studios in London. So this wasn't written as a, as a, as a songwriter's song. <laughs> um, and, and at the end, and you can hear in the background, I'm just, I'm blowing vocally i'm just blowing i'm just singing my and I, and i'm a lot of the back a lot of the background vocals are me it, it sounds over the top but um almost uh crying out you know screaming out like no way no way did this happen you know as you can hear there you know I, and i and uh i didn't comp them i did i thought i'm gonna leave these vocals in just multiple vocals so they're just gonna keep on spraying off into into the onto the horizon i wasn't sure it was a good song and I, and I'm still not. I just think that it's it emotionally was right for me to put it out. You know, it, it was important for me to get it to his wife when I'd finished it and to tell everybody what it was about. Um, I didn't. I don't think it's a crafted song. I really don't. Uh, even on the end, when I sang the "In the House of Stone and Light" thing, it was a last-minute thing in the darkness. And you know my studio, Mike. It's, it's you know, it's, it looks out on the garden, and it, and I and, and it's all very kind of secluded and dark. And I had the lights down low, and I was, I'm pretty sure, I was, um, as you say, the word is wailing. But it, it helped me, and I was able to go and play the song to a few close friends, including yourself, and say, "This is for him," you know. Um, it's rare when you when I do vocals like that when I don't even <laughs> wonder if they're in tune or not. It's like I'm s- screaming out to the stars, um, and then it was and I let them stay. You know, there's a lot of rough edges on that on this track, but also it's it's reminiscent of what we loved. Uh, you know, Blue Nile, Prefab Sprout, Simple Minds, a lot of where we came from. And although Mike did Def Leppard and, and is known for all his great rock stuff, deep down both of us cared about subtlety in music and he had a great great ear for subtlety and um reverbs and atmosphere that's the key about mike shipley he atmosphere 
and that's what I even tried to sum up in the in the quick time I did this song. You know, if he was sat next to me, when that's how I thought about it. You know, if he was sat next to me, he'd be going, yeah, yeah, you know, blue chords, lovely, put the reverb on here. And over the years, because I do everything myself and do everything at home, I copy I've, him. I've learned such a lot about how he used to mix. A lot of my mixes reflect a little bit of how he worked. No one knew as good as what he does, but, but um, he's, he's my, I get near to his um, concepts of how to sonically see things. I try to follow that. The couple times that I was with you when we were actually the only times I met Mike and talked to him was when yeah. I was with you. Yeah. Um, the first time was when we were about to start your studio. When That's we were right. To check out his Pro Tools rig. That's right. Um, really, really nice guy. Very gracious. Yeah, Showed yeah. us all the technical stuff, everything on the. Yeah. It's just a shame he was Australian. <laughs> it's the only thing that let him down. Uh, <laughs> and then I remember meeting him in the uh, when he was mixing Me Marina and yeah. uh, just the. There's a great musical language that you guys had. You yeah. would, you'd say a reference, and he would, you know, answer, yeah. and he'd have a reference. And also, you know, he was a, he was a. Both of us were rather sensitive boys, and so we would sometimes at the end of session sit and turn the lights off and just have a good old natter about life. And uh, that's what I think really connected us. He was a very very sensitive man, you know. Um, and I can't help but think that. Um, he should still be around, you know. Um, it's that's uh, yeah, this song, as we've seen many times. One, of, you know, people that lose somebody, they do something in art to, to help themselves. So, I was helping myself um, hugely by um, subconsciously thinking of him when I wrote that song. Well, all I know is it's it's the perfect song, and you wrote a really great song for Thank him, you, and I think you would just absolutely love it. All right, let's move on. So then we move into Light of Dawn, which is a, a, a fabulous song to follow. Because, you know, if you know the backstory, it's a little down and then you just get into this up, uplifting place. Tell us a little bit about this song. Um, this is a, is, it, again, it's like a hymn to me. It's a, I, I tend to <laughs> write lots of hymns that tend to turn into um, popular ditties. Uh, this, this song... Um, has a very traditional feel about it, quarterly, and um, I wanted to—I want, really wanted to write a song that was, a, um, again, inspirational on many levels, and I—I I, I think a lot of the lyrics are written after the 9/11 took place because I really felt like um, terrible things like that. There's nothing you can do about it except get up the next day and, and the sun rises and you and you move forward. So. Um, I really wanted to write it as a, simply an inspirational song. I'd been reading a lot of um, great um, oration by Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy, and by reading their speeches, this song started to take shape lyrically to me. Um, and Light of Dawn is just another way of saying there's another day. Um, we have to get up and the sun's going to rise, and there's nothing you can do about it, but um, walk forward. Um, and again, this, this song started to t <laughs> tell me that I was writing a, a spiritual record that, that is almost had gospel influences. I, you yeah. know, I was, totally. I, I was very surprised because all of a sudden I suddenly fell upon this kind of 
yes, Golden's a little different, and Mistress, the last song on the album, is a little different. But suddenly there seemed to be this cohesive link of um, gospel, which, you know, I don't really portray all the time. It's an underlying thing in me, but because I'd read about the blues, because I'd seen in the, the... reading about the blues it took me back to where I'd been when I was a young man because my father had lived in we'd all lived as a family in South Carolina and Savannah and Charleston and I started to actually at my late age look at my own heritage and thought my influences and it's a strange thing you don't really look at your influences unless you've lived a certain amount of time to go ah now I can see this a bit clearly it's like Paul McCartney looking back at his demos for the Beatles and saying wow I can see that that came from our rockabilly roots and whatever and so I started to listen to my songs and go underneath all this everything I've ever written has a feeling of black music so in light of dawn um made me think like suddenly all the songs were beginning to get um, this taste this taste of uh, the south um, because I lived in the south on and off for like you know eight to ten years and I was and all I did was buy records at the local uh, supermarket so I was coming home every night with Wilson Pickett the Staple Singers um bb king you know um yeah not a lot of people know that you're from the no. south and that well that yeah i mean <laughs> i'm from the south in england and from and i spent a lot of this, my time with my dad in charleston and savannah yeah. uh, north carolina atlanta because uh, he was uh, working in the air bases and we were and i was very bored i was a young lad i was missing my home in england so all i did was buy records and i just and i'm looking at my collection and i've still got those 45s it's all Atlantic, it's all Stacks, it's all Vox, uh, Vault. So I realized that this had seeped through my skin. In Light of Dawn, um, I finished it off in that gospel flavor because I could tell that I was discovering something about my past. So I suddenly thought, this is what I'm doing. This is what the album is. It's going to have that flavor. I, I can hear gospel choirs across the U.S. singing the song. It's such that would be nice. It's such, a, it's such a great song. Well, let's keep moving. Let's go straight from there to uh, exactly what you were talking about, your heritage with, uh, with Standing on the Rock. Funky, Mike. This is very funky. Stop moving. You're dancing now. I can, I can see it. Your, your toes are moving. I remember when you were talking about this song before it even had this much structure. And when I heard this, I was like, yeah, this is exactly what you were talking about. Um, is this like a love letter to all those early artists? That absolutely, Mike, absolutely. It's, um, it's my way of thanking all those great artists that um, turned me on. Um, it, I'm, I'm touching all those, all those influences and, in a way, just um, paying homage to them, you know. Uh, R&B through the 70s really, really got me. I mean, it really got me. Um, even now, I still... <laughs> I look at the Midnight Special TV series and go, Yes! You know, there's the Drifters, there's uh, Staple Singers, there's Sly again, and... Um, fantastic time i mean people don't talk about the 70s as a very uh special influential time of music and to me it really was you know you could hear it in led zeppelin that they were listening to black music credence clearwater revival it's tremendous amount of soul in there stable singers respect myself you know i'll take you there reggae was you know it happening down south you know 
Paul Simon was doing Mother and Child Reunion. Fantastic. And uh, it taught me to play bass as well. So really, this Standing on the Rock is a bass player's song. You know, I really took time on playing the bass on this uh, as well as I possibly could hey, you know what? i'm don't, featuring it don't undersell your your bass playing because you're a funky bass player i mean you are really good and, thank you Mike. and i think a lot of it comes because of your musical influence and what you yeah. what you grew up listening to and, yeah. and playing my my first ever bands uh in england were both were bronx in um bristol and a band called cabasa in oxford and we were soul bands we play we copied the commodores we cop- we played all the songs, average white band songs. So I learned I learned my trade. I learned my um, my apprenticeship was playing funk. And if you're a bass player, if you fall in love with the bass, those four strings, you're gonna want to get near black music. You know, it's it's sexy, it's inspiring. And as soon as I saw. You know, Earth, Wind and Fire with Verdine White playing bass, Stanley Clark playing bass, and Louis Johnson playing with the Brothers Johnson. I was lost. You know, I just thought, that is magic. I even, when I was living down south, went to a Brothers Johnson Graham Central Station concert. I, was, I think I was the only white guy in the audience. Um, can't believe that I, I did that. And I'm up the front staring at Louis Johnson and staring at um, Larry Graham as they slapped the bass. And I just thought... This is magic to me because it was percussive, sexy, right. and positive. Yeah. You know, um, had a growl too. Had a growl, you know, and I started to fall in love with the Fender precision basses and jazz basses and the thump, the thump, the, the hump of basses. And uh, luckily on this record, I had all my guitars um, uh, by a great guy called John Armitrout, who did all my, um, he brought all my basses back to real life and um, set them up into a place where I could um, perform, you know, without even really thinking. Um, and, I, and slapping bass was one of the things, as an Englishman, I was absolutely fascinated with. So when I came back from the South and joined these English bands, I was playing, I was slapping the bass quite a bit. And so a lot of the English bands thought, this is quite new. So I got a lot of gigs because I'd lived out there. I mean, Louis Johnson and, and Larry Graham were the were the instigators of that incredible percussive style. So, um, yeah, I, I got my old my old Aria bass was touched up, and I brought that out. And I, that was one of my first basses ever I played in in England. And that's what you hear on this track. Oh yeah, it's it's my first original bass. Um, given a good wash and a clean and I'm playing it and, and uh, it's put pretty loud in the mix because uh, my manager Diane said it's about time we heard your bass playing again <laughs> because you're hiding it you know <laughs> yeah it's also put loud in the mix because you're mixing it <laughs> absolutely you know it's a funny thing I tended I think in all my early stuff I would hide the bass even though uh, because I was thinking more about chords on all rounder you know and I'd, I'd learned that the, when I was in my first bands I was playing bass so prominently and playing so many notes so fast just to show that I could play, then as you become a songwriter, you say, ah, we don't need to play quite so many notes. Let's hear the melody. And so I think over the years, I dissipated the bass, pushed it to the side. But on this record, it was a bit like, let's get it up there and, and um, feature it a bit. And I think um, I'm actually proud of that. It's, it's more prominent than on anything I've done before. 
Well, not only that, but also your guitar work too is pretty funky. Yeah, I, I, can't, mean, quite, I can't quite understand the guitar work because <laughs> I'm not really a guitarist, so it's very baffling to me. I just need to mention that you know not only did you write the songs, but you played all the instruments and you mixed all the tracks. I mean, you are one talented dude there. Oh, mate! Uh, so, you know, there's uh, it was um, it's a labor of love, and uh, but the guitars were great fun because. Um, by reading about the blues and watching the great blues players like um, the early ones, you know, John Lee Hooker, right. which I knew nothing about, you know, and watching um, uh, the B.B. King right from his early days. You just, just watching how they felt guitars made me believe that I could um, express myself on guitar, not just as parts, but just try and understand scales and bend the notes. And um, just by believing that you wanted to express yourself. Some of these guitars uh, in these songs um, magically appeared, and particularly on, like you say, uh, Love Resurrection and this one. Um, I got into a, a funky place and enjoyed it. Nice. Let's move on to, uh, you know, continuing the, the whole gospel feel. We go into your next song, which is uh, I Got My Faith in You. There are many, many things that I don't believe in And there are moments when my heart cannot see And I wonder, yeah I wonder what my poor soul can do but I still got my faith in you Yeah, I still got my faith in you This song works on so many levels, on, on, you know, on a spiritual level, on just on so many levels. Tell us a little bit about the song, I Got My Faith in You. It's it's a it's a very simple song and um, interesting for me to write a few songs that didn't have huge <laughs> chord progressions like strong. This is basically doing you know the the blues trick. You know we're we're moving between three to four to five chords in songs like Resurrection and this. And um, I deeply loved some of those very simplistic, straight ahead. Um, soul songs like by the Shy Lights and, and by the Staple Singers because they never really went too far um, harmonically. They stayed in a very, very close place. The only time I really express a, a different kind of harmonic um, basis here is when I, on the fade, which um, I do a little bit of a, a pop trick there and, and it gets very emotional to me that it changes slightly there, but it was just beautiful to write, to make myself write a song in a organic simple structure it's not there are millions of songs written with these chords but if you can pull out um an emotional core with those with that progression then i think that's wonderful because that's really what the blues artists did they were they were able to make those three to five chords really uh, resonate um and this song lyrically was um a true true um, reflection of me um, you know I I believe that 
that I'd been through some rough times in my life, and I thought, what what, what really got me through that? And it was usually uh, a person. It wasn't um, something I couldn't see or something that I'd been um, told to believe in. It was a person. And really, that's what this is. It's about, um, you know, if I can see you with my own eyes and you stand next to me as a as a person, as a lover, as a, as a friend, as a partner or a brother, that's where my faith is. In, in my faith is in the person who stands next to me. That's where that came from. I just think the um, the background vocals, once again, are just, just dead nuts on. And it's just thick and wide and... and that's what I was just saying about the fade here. This was beautiful to do this fade because slightly the transition changes and um, I start to, the bass starts to descend just down chromatically and it breaks the routine of those three to four or five chord trick. Um, it becomes a little bit more um, churchy, you know. You can just hear there with the change. It's a change in the bass line and it, and it allowed me to do vocals which um, could sustain and expand Some, sometimes it made me feel like I was listening to uh, Chicago doing a song like this you know with just great harmonies I, I can definitely yeah. I can hear yeah. that so Chicago if you're out there there's a song here waiting for you <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the next song um, which is uh, a really it, it takes a little turn but nothing too far um, tell us a little bit about this song Kindred Spirit well, My Kindred Spirit is, is one of the songs I've had for quite a while. I, I started it um, quite a time back, but I never really got my teeth into it to really finish it the way I wanted to. And then as Hotel started to form itself and I could see these gospel influences, I'd, I often go back and listen to old songs because sometimes they find old songs raise themselves again and they, and, a, and a different time allows them to be seen differently and um when i listened to the the raw demo of kindred spirit i thought yeah you know i can really really bring this into this record and finish this the way i really want to um so i did a lot of overdubs on my original old demo and and i, I tried to bring in a rhythm section which was like earth wind and fire meeting peter gabriel meeting an african group and yet still keep this English choral um, sense with the, with the vocals. Um, really, the chords, if you just separate the chords away from the groove, it's, uh, again, um, a kind of Simon and Garfunkel song. It's like a Bridge Over Triple Waters hymn, you know. But underneath, I wanted to, again, pull out the bass oh, yeah. and do the Verdine White trick. Your, your bass is killing it at the yeah. beginning. At the very top, boy, you're, it's, yeah. you're just Well, that's a, that's a stick bass. I have this old stick bass that I bought back in the, again, I think in the 70s. I don't really know how to play it, but I pulled it out <laughs> and I found the notes that sounded good. So I put a bit of stick bass on in, as a kind of theme. And then at the last minute, I went and got a Fender Jazz bass and made it really bright, like Verdine White, and played the hell out of it so that it sounded like you had a little bit of um, earth, wind and fire coming around some English choral music, which I think would be a great blend. Oh, it, it had that growl, too. That, yeah. It just growled. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's, it's fantastic, because I had to listen back to the bass players I really liked in the past, and I tend to like a... All my records have a lot of bass on I mean, roundness, and I, I'm not overly bright. But when I listened to Verdine's bass plan, he had it rippingly bright and, and crisp. 
And so I thought, let's do something that I don't usually do. Let's play this jazz bass, really compressed, really bright, like he would pop away. And um, it was a trim- it, so there's really like four or five basses on this song. There's the root bass, there's the stick bass, and then there's this um, pseudo Ferdine White coming in from somewhere, pop popping away. And um, again, it was great fun to take an old song and say, okay, let's do another fifty percent work on this. And I made it fit the record, because by now, because I knew that this record was going to be gospel-influenced, you know, so that's how I finished it. Let me ask you a quick question. You you talk a lot about brothers, and you talk about, you know, kindred spirits and brothers, and you mentioned brothers in a lot of songs. Do you think, um, how do you think being an only child has affected your songwriting? What do you mean by that? <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. No, I mean, no. I mean, have you ever like? Did you ever want to have like a a real brother? I mean, obviously- no, 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 no. I remember my parents said to me when I was a little boy. They said, um, "Do you want a Do you want a brother?" And I went, "No." <laughs> do you want a sister? No. I don't want a cat or a dog. But no, I want to be the center of attention. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I can't say that. No, I mean. I, but it's funny, it stuck in my mind that even back then my mum asked me, because I think they were thinking about going forward, and I was like, I don't want another one of me around. I want to eat all the food, you know. So, um, no, you know, it's never really occurred to me that way. You know, I've had I've, I've, I've had great friends and great partnerships, right. and, I, you know, it, it's never been something that has, has ever um, really come to mind. It's ne- It never has. Um, when I write in songs, I think about, brother it's more about brotherhood right you know about the feeling of people the feeling of friendship uh, kindred spirit is a, is mainly a song about friendship that's really what this song's really all about you know um friendship which is i think possibly the greatest relationship we can have in life well, you know? absolutely and there's a lot of people that have siblings that that have you know horrible relationships with them yeah. and then uh, so yeah and as someone who has a great, you know, relationship with my uh, brother, I, it's just like our relationship, you know. Absolutely, <laughs> it's, it's no, it's a, true though. Mike. It's a brother relationship. I mean, so. if you think about it, I know this we're going off off to a tangent here, but w- we've been together, you and I, you know, right from the first times I started on the road with House of Stone and Light. So, you know, brotherhood comes in many forms, you know, and uh, it's a it's a it's something that has sustained me, and I think people don't really realise um, how much friendship sustains people you know um i think you and i have been been together for 20 years yeah you know it's it's been a while Um, and the thing is i think you know with brotherhood it's it's those relationships as you get older and you've never come to me and asked for money or anything (laughs) which which makes you a great brother wait till we're done I shouldn't have brought that up, should I? <laughs> uh, but that was a that was a great song. Well, let's let's move on to um, well. Here's another one along the lines in, of your roots, uh, Delta Jukebox. That's the crickets in the swamp. The old jukebox. Ghosts in the jukebox. It's a great a great yeah. opening. <laughs> How fun was this song? I mean, seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
great. You know, it's great. It was great because, you know, I really did sit down and think about the Staples Singers. I really did. You know, I made no bones about it. You know, it's uh, you listen to Respect Yourself and I'll Take You There and a lot of their albums, the, the bass and the guitars. And I love reggae, you know, big time. And the Staples Singers were one of the first R&B bands to really use um, reggae influences in the um, rhythm section. What was great about doing this track was doubling the bass with the guitar. Um because that made the riffs really punch out and uh, another trick of the staple singers which uh, I make no bones about it I really wanted to emulate their feel that swingy song oh absolutely you know and you can hear the guitar you see the other guitar they were always scraping and so I me loving Jamaican music I, I there was this music coming from Memphis that had Jamaican uh, rhythm section. I mean, Paul Simon went down went down after hearing the Staple Singers and said, "I want them on. I want the Black Players on um, uh, Mother and Child Reunion." You know, which was a brilliant reggae song. Right. And they had to tell him. They said, "It's not Black Guys. These are Southern White Players that are playing the bass to I'll Take You There," which is really the bass line from a huge reggae song called Liquidator. Um, that same riff, huh. um, and I knew the liquid. I knew Liquidator, Harry J, and the All Stars from living in England. And suddenly, the Staple Singers were using that bass line from the Liquidator on "I'll Take You There," and it was played by Southern players who must have heard this Jamaican music, and they they took that great riff right. and put it into "I'll Take You There," and uh, so everybody's everybody's stealing from everybody else. I would say it's great stealing, but they were all influencing each other yeah and what what hit me with the staple singers was this you know they had yeah. that feel always even when they played live and of course they have this the 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 old papa who played the guitar he was the their their father was always going you know so it was, it was semi-reggae to me i didn't yeah. know why i loved it but then uh, on top of that was the great you know mavis staple singing the most spiritual Christian gospel music you'd ever hear right. you know but I didn't take any notice of the lyrics it was the feel to me yeah. it was a feel you know and of course I'd written I read so much about the blues um, that I didn't know about um, Johnson and I read uh, all about yeah Sunhouse all the very very, very uh, lead belly and I suddenly felt the magic and the uh, of the Delta after I'd read all the books I just thought it must be such a magical place to, to feel um, if you've been down there and experienced right. that music, uh, Blind Willie Johnson and these these players, all of them, and were just phenomenal exp uh, at expressing their emotions. And I, I and, and at this late stage, I discovered it. You know, right at the end, here I am. You know, discovering it at a late. Most people have gone through the blues. I never did. I went through pop, reggae, progressive music, and so. I sort of had a bit of a disdain about the blues. Oh, yeah, well, it's all the same. Right, right. Well, it's not, you know, and I had to go back past the commercial blues of, you know, um, shall we say, when B.B. B. B. King became a little bit sort of um, commercialized. But right. if you go back to the heritage of B.B. King and even before that, and you, right. and you listen to the very, very first field recordings of The Slaves, it, you are listening to Bootsy Collins and you are listening to... 
um, George Clinton in Parliament, and you're listening to Earth, Wind and Fire. And it, and it stuck in my mind when I, my, um, when I was working with Earth, Wind and Fire that M- Maurice White said to me, and I didn't really take it in because I was a pop boy, you know, at that time, but he said, you know, everything is folk music. Everything is folk music. Everything. Folk. folk. And blues is folk. Wow. Reg- reggae is folk. And I'm talking about what the word folk means. Right, it's, right. It's, it's roots music. And that's really what um, Maurice White was saying to us. And I was going, folk, you know. I mean, that's Jethro Tull, isn't it? You know, but now, <laughs> he's talking about swamp roots music, slavery, what, what was brought over from Africa. Wow. Well, that's a that's a great track, and that horn section at the end on the way out. I mean, how fun was that? That that was just amazing. I'm just glad nobody saw me doing that because that was just <laughs> <laughs> almost like playing with a kazoo, you know. But it worked. It worked. Uh, that was really good. Well, let's move on to uh, a track that when you first hear it, you're like, huh? huh? But actually, it's and now for something completely different. <laughs> exactly. But it's it's turned out to be one of my favorite. And I remember the first time you played this for me, I was just. It's halfway laughing and just enjoying it, and it was it was pretty it was pretty fun. So here we go. Let's play this. Okay, let's try it again. Okay, <laughs> one, two, mm. one, two. <laughs> <laughs> There's that horn player again. <laughs> is that the stick bass that you're playing there? Or? No, no, that actually is a is a Paul McCartney Hofner bass. Really? Yeah. And and I wanted to use the Hofner bass because it's like a violin bass, so it sounds like an upright. You know, the the, the it's uh, and the Hofners are never really in tune, so they've got this very almost like um, live stand-up bass feel to them. That was great to do because I'm a big guy and you play the Hofner basses and they're like minute, you know? <laughs> they're so small, they're half size, right. you know? So tell us, tell us about this song. I don't know, Mike, you know, this, this is one of those that um, popped out of the air again from, I think, when I think about it, it's because I was working um, quite a while with um, Robbie Williams and he loved swing and, he, and we were, at that time writing some folk songs together but he kept on saying to me you know I love swing Pedro why don't you write a swing song for me so secretly I went away and thought I don't really know too much about swing but I'll do a little bit of studying again and it linked on straight away to the blues stuff I was studying you know the blues definitely moved into swing the Chicago sound moved into swing Um, and so I started to look at the, the wonderful chord sequences of great swing records and um when I was working with Robbie Williams, I was playing guitar, um, which is quite bizarre because I play keyboards usually when I write. So I had to do a, a kind of crash course on guitar. And I did. I did a crash course in learning every folk song I possibly could, as fast as I could. And at the same time, I started to listen to great jazz records and, um, and looking at the chord sequences. And that made me write something like this, which has, is a very unusual chord sequence for me. Great fun again. Terrific fun. And I wrote a few others that had a swing feel around the same time. Um, and I'd like to do it again because um, it was casual for me. And I'd have to put this down to the influence of being around um, Robbie Williams because it's always tongue-in-cheek with him. And uh, this is really through that period that this song appeared and um, 
it was great fun. I mean, it was great fun to put a record, a song on the album that broke the spell a little bit of、um, the mood. But again, you know, I think it also tied into、um, slight blues because、yeah. we're talking. That's where swing came from. You definitely hear it. You know, one thing I wanted to talk to you about.、Um, I don't think people realize that. You know, being a songwriter, how much book work you do for your songs? I mean, you study. I mean, it's not just like you're sitting here and all these songs just come to you. I've seen you go out and and study and pursue and and find where the songs can come to you.、Um, talk a little. Let's talk a little bit about that because, like, when you go into swing, you're going to listen to swing. You're going to study, and you're not just going to study what's now. You're going to go back.、Um, How does that work? How's your process? I mean, I know you read a lot. Yeah, I'm I'm、uh, compulsive, obsessive, compulsive, obsessive. I just once I fall in, once I'm intrigued by something,、um, I become massively intrigued,、um, and、uh, there's really no half measures once I once I'm intrigued. I mean, it's as simple as that, and. And I then eat it up、um, absolutely like、um, like a sponge.、Um, I will go to the only remaining music shop in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, sorrow, 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 Amoeba, which is very near here where we're recording. And I will go to the back of the shop where there's, you know, the obscure swing,、um, the、um, the very, very, very authentic blues records. Because、um, I because all my life, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Right. So, so we're talking about. You know, and I talked to my manager about this. You know, it's like you you can't keep on writing the same thing without、um, being and trying to inspire yourself. You know, I mean, if you if you're going to be doing this for forty years, which I I seem to have been doing, <laughs> you have to light yourself up. And、um, I would read. I'm I'm an avid reader, so I would read the bios of you know. Uh, Cab Calloway, and I'd read the bios of, of James Brown, and I'd, I'd read a slice. I'd read everybody. I just read, and as I read, like a little boy, as I get excited. Even now, I get very excited and go, "Oh, I want to try that." And I think the key here is emulation. You want to try and emulate things you love. You want to know more about it. You want to, you, you know, I've, I've played you some of the music I do instrumentally as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I get fascinated from anything from Can Tangerine Dream to Bauhaus to Ultravox to the Thompson Twins、yeah. to Earth Wind and Fire to Cab Calloway to、um, you know、um, obscure、uh, avant-garde music, and I never had that when I was young. Because my apprenticeship was pop, 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 R and B, pop, 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 R and B. Only now, which is pretty unbelievable, is、um, I'm finding、um, I'm getting inspired to continue on by learning about things I I never did get a chance to take in when I was the popular songwriter.、Right. I mean, really, there was a time when I was I just wanted to、uh, break through. So you're 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 doing. You're sat at home in the eighties,、um, doing Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and you're doing Go West, and you're thinking you're thinking Prince meets Go West, and you're thinking、um, how do I make a Motown song sound like Ultravox have played it? So、right. you, that's how I broke through. But even then, it's it, it's all study of something that you absolutely love. Yeah, I mean the key word here is you love it, and.、Um, 
Even doing this interview now, it feels exactly the same as when I did an interview with K-Rock with Q-Feel back hmm. in 82. And you're excited to do it because you're talking about something which you absolutely breathe. You breathe it. You, well, know. you definitely breathe it. And I know because some of our conversations that we've had, yeah. sometimes every once in a while I think, man, I wish I wish we could record some of that stuff because, yeah. I yeah. mean, it gets kind of heavy duty into some music and uh, yeah. just some of the – just approaching music from a very cerebral point of view, which, mm. is, which is amazing. And once you start understanding and you start seeing how the relationships are and how the music affects you on a, on a cerebral level. And, and it's an interesting thing, Mike, because I, when you do a record um, – uh, you you don't really you get a feeling as you're doing the record that it's got a theme or or it, it's progressing, and I tend to write a lot of material and out of those fifty songs maybe fourteen start to look like there's something that all sticks together, but um, a lot of the fans uh, responded saying that Hotel of the Two Worlds was very um, eclectic and had many different styles, and I didn't really feel that I didn't know it you know. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the fans have taught me. They've said this record moves, although it's got a theme that is, you know, got the gospel and the southern feel about it. It, it, it's it's got a lot of variation, which um, was exciting for me to hear because you know it's so easy to go slip back into what you know so well and to stay there. And I did force myself a little bit to say. We're only going to play three chords here. You know, we're going to funk, and you better play guitar, Pagey. You know, and I want you to play like a black man, you know. <laughs> and oh, if you're going to do swing, you can't just do swing without learning some of these wonderful jazz chords. And you'll better bend your fingers around the acoustic guitar to pull this off reasonably well, right. you know. The great thing about my, uh, what I like about my own records, and I don't mean this at all in an ego sense, is that there is a lot of homemade feeling about them. Yeah. And um, I don't think you hear that much yep. these days, you know. So um, I'm, I used to be worried about about that that i thought oh god i'm doing everything at home now i'm like well it's got its sound that's 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 not a sound you always get so that's what's pretty cool about it for me well speaking of eclectic let's go on to the next song which is uh which is a pretty awesome song all too human I like the drum sticks on the rim. Yeah, side sticks. It's nice to play live on top of a drum machine. Oh, it's great. I can tell you that your arrows never struck the marrow, and baby, that I'm getting. So let's talk about All Too Human. How did that come about? Um. Again, I think this was towards the end of the record. I realized what the record was turning into, and I started to do that kind of overproducing, not overproducing, but the producer's job. I went like, uh huh, we've got a nice mid tempo, we've got a good beginning, we've got a couple of funky ones, and we've, we're, we could do one more that just has a little bit of energy here. And um, because I'd be, I always listen to my iPod on uh, this thing where it just shuffles. I started to really hear some great music that just really stimulated me, and that was ZZ Top. I started to hear ZZ Top really clearly, and I heard Robert Palmer doing his period when he was doing synth music called, on a great album called Clues. And I thought, this would be fun to do, to really just um, get a, a song that pulsed, that really pulsed, and that, what would Robert Palmer do? I mean, I, you know... It, um, 
I heard Robert Palmer doing this song. You know, I, I could hear that he would have... I'd have always wanted to write with Robert Palmer. I always thought we would have done well together. And um, I sort of started this track thinking of him and thinking of a groove, you know, got a tempo going. Unfortunately, when the song started, it started to sound too much like Michael Jackson to me. It, uh, the way I'd started it, I started to think this sounds like Thriller, and I'm not really pulling this off, although Thriller's a brilliant record. But I thought, hmm, I need to get grittier than this. So I went back to my the old trick of the um, blues I'd been listening to and, and the early recordings, and I just put the kick right up front and just went with it. And I'd heard some great records by ZZ Top, you know, LaGrange, where you just... Right. And that's the side sticks on LaGrange. That you sounds know, like... Right. You know, you know, ha, ha, ha. And I really got off on it, because I thought, I think the ZZ Top are so funky. Well, this, the guitar solo right here. Yeah, I went out. has a ZZ Top type of feel. Thank you, Mike. I went out of my head to get that. Um, but uh, um, I, the side sticks really, really broke the song apart. At first, it was sounding like a bit, you know, no, no not derogatory, but it was sounding a bit like a, to me... A Michael Jackson R&B tune by Rod Temperton, great. Right, right. And then um, I started to think of, of roughing it up, you know, bringing some barbed wire in the room. Yeah. And I set the side stick, the snares up in uh, in the owl's nest, which you know is like my garage with its more ambient. And I just played the side sticks like an old rockabilly record. And that, um, again, I think what happens with writers like myself is you subconsciously remember all the, re the records you love. And Lagrange had these side sticks in the record, and I thought. Let, and as soon as I played that, I pulled away all the paraphernalia of the drum machine that was making it sound a little bit like an R&B '80s song. And I suddenly had this kind of gritty groove going on. Um, and I like to play live drums on top of drum machines so that it smudges and roughs it up, and it's a little bit. It's feel feel goes. It c comes into the technology. Um, and that made me sing it differently and made me see the lyrics differently. And the all-too-human thing appeared through the progression of the track getting rougher, grittier. And so I wound up the guitar amps, you know, and just thought, I'm going to blow, blow as much as I can. Let's, let's upset the neighbours. And uh, this track started to speak to me again it, you know it has a slight gospel feel right. and I think one of my books upstairs was by Frederick Nietzsche human or too human so it probably caught my eye and off I went <laughs> you know it's such a great song I mean there's so many tasty little parts the little guitar riff is awesome and the, the side sticks are, are perfect and and you know it's thank you Mark. the thing I like about your songwriting and is it's is it's you're just patient it's like I tell you all the time it's like you don't overuse anything you have just enough side stick you pull it out when you need to you push it back in on the choruses and things like that and it's really tasty well you know it's um, I'm one of those people that plays my music constantly in the car all the time non-stop and so as I'm driving around I'm actually doing a lot of my production in the car I'm listening to what's overdone what's not done you know and I have the time on my hands at home to pull the faders back push them up pull them back and um that's really where a lot of my production is done is driving around in my car you know what I, and I gotta say we were when we were talking about doing this he really does Martin I, I know you you do a ton of production in your car I mean yeah you're always having a, a 
uh, check mix and you're always you know rough yeah. on whatever song and uh, we, we were talking, I, I live for that you know every, know every morning I get up I go and have a I head for the coffee shop and I have my CDs in my hand you know I have to burn the CDs of the day of the stuff I've been working on and then I just I fill up all the the six places in the car of six CDs and I'll just keep on hitting them to see how the songs work together which ones work which ones don't and um, that's where it all happens for me and I and then I get home and the coffee's got me going and I run straight in and go now I know what to do <laughs> now I know how to finish this we were originally we were trying to figure out how to do this in the car because we just I just thought it would have been a great idea you yeah. know but unfortunately we couldn't but just drive good, a good idea for the just, the next one yeah the next yeah. one just drive and, and do it all in your car because yeah. that literally is yeah. is you know yeah. takes you know you should give it half the credit because I know you do a lot no, of no no I, I, I think that everything you know I, it's funny when you think about where your ideas come from and my most of my ideas come from uh, driving about and I will drive for when I shouldn't be driving I'll just drive around the valley for hours playing one song turning on roads I don't know because I'm thinking I'm nearly get, getting this I think I know what I should do and I carry you know your, your phone and I'm, I start right. I pull over and I sing a melody into the phone because something's happening on the backing track but um, I will do a good two hours each morning just driving nebulously around the valley playing one song <laughs> until it until I get it yeah I, I also, if I could have a studio in the car <laughs> there'd be more work coming out quicker wouldn't there you know? well <laughs> I know. Because I have to get out of the car, go into the studio, so it takes time. But if I had a studio in the car, there you go. I'd be sending out all the stuff to iTunes. That's what we're going to do every turn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know that you uh, a big thing about uh, your car is you listen to the uh, the order of uh, of the of the CD. Yeah, I do. Trying to decide which way. Yeah, you know, you, you give it to the car test and you listen to the whole thing. Yeah, I do. The, the, I, that's that's a big thing to me, huge to me. Is um, sequencing massive? I'm doing that as we as we speak now on some of the projects I'm working on. Sequencing it to me is absolutely integral to a record. A whole, you see, in my time, and I say my old time, the old geezer's time. <laughs> you know, you buy my favourite records: Abbey Road, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton. These records were really thought of as whole albums, and Genesis, you know, um, selling England by the pound. They'd spend as much time thinking about you're going to a movie, you're gonna, you know, and and it's how the songs all play into each other right. that makes somebody maybe sit down, although they don't do it much these the these these days, which is a great shame because of um, what technology's done, but. Um, uh, the experience, the experience of sitting down and saying we're going to go for fifteen minutes, fifty minutes of listening to an album, is still resonates with me. It was born into me, you know. Um, Paul Simon's records, Ryman Simon, you know, right. Kodachrome. You can put those records on to me because I came through that era. I'm sure for kids, it's like we don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but, but because it's come down to the ninety nine cents um, quick delivery, and, and there's not really a, a, a marketplace for albums, but. Um, to me, it's ever so, ever so, ever so special. Even for me personally, when I listen to this record with you now, because I don't really play them straight after I finish for quite a while, right. as I because I know it would really, I'm going to swear here, bloody annoy me if I listen to this go through as you're playing it and go, that's in the wrong place. Because it would speak to me. Yeah. Not instantly, but I go, that's in the wrong place. Yeah. And I made a big blunder there. But I can honestly say... Um, Although you could, I could move around a few songs and they'd probably still work. 
I can pro- I can say that on the four albums I've done, I've put as much time into thinking where they sit as much as what songs go on the record. Uh, that's major to me. You know, I, I get a big buzz when somebody says, man, I really get into the whole album because yeah. I, I know that means it's the flow. Oh, yeah. The flow's the thing. The flow's the thing. And you know what? This comes to the last song on the album, um, My Mistress is Warm. Here we go. The roar of the wind, the cradle of Cupid, the ephemerals, the ghost of Tell us a little about this song. I think it wraps up your album perfectly. It kind of completes the journey, but tell us a little bit about this. This was um, a late-night writing session. Um, I was sat in the studio. I'd finished some work, um, and I remember looking out at the pool, and everything was um, sort of quite nocturne. I could just about see, you know, birds outside in the half-gloom. And... um, I had this urge just to do what I love to do, is just to put a nice sound on the keyboard. I used to love those sounds like Prophet 5 um, pad sounds, and I thought, well, I haven't done that for a long time. So I I didn't even start the drum machine up. As you can tell, this, this, is, this is free-form tempo. And I basically sat down and played um, this progression while looking out the window. And I didn't think it was going to mean much. I was just plan notes and chords and um then i the mic is always set up microphone is always there and ready to go as you've because mike you set my studio up so well and so i can jam instantly and um i started to sing on top of the pads as i was playing and it and i thought what i'm doing here is a noodle i'm noodling away and i'm very content and i'm enjoying this but subconsciously the night before, I'd watched a documentary on Shakespeare and that Shakespeare was one of the first visual playwrights in the sense that he brought to stage theatrics, lighting, music and effects, which nobody really thinks about. But in his later work, he would concentrate, Shakespeare would, on exciting people with lighting and with effects and he'd bring everybody around the audience in the audience he'd move the seats very very close for striking effects with the actors and what I was watching in this documentary is there is a moment in a play when a husband believes he's killed his wife and he's mourning his wife and his wife suddenly appears on stage uh, and Shakespeare, and she's supposed to be dead, and he's mourning her. Well, they this this Shakespeare presented it almost like a theatre, like a Genesis, like the first rock concert. So the woman's face is lit up with these candles, and she's got this pearl powder, all white powder, all over her, <laughs> all over her face. And everybody's looking at her close on. She's she's lit up this way. Nobody re- and there's music going on. Shakespeare used music. Nobody really is totally aware of in his later plays. He was thinking of it being in a huge theatrical effect. Anyway, they used to put this um, on this lady on the, on this actress's face was this um, pearl powder, white 
all across her face. So when, then, when the lights hit her face and her eyes opened, the, the man who thought his wife was dead says, my mistress is alive hmm. and she's warm to my touch. And uh, it was a striking moment in Shakespeare's play that everybody went, <gasps> because her face lit up, but she, but she was white as a sheet. So in, in the, in, and the makeup they used in Shakespeare's time were, uh, was like a, a pearl um, powder, a white pearl powder over the face. <coughs> and uh, that struck, you know, I realized that <laughs> was jamming the song. I started to sing this phrase I'd heard uh, in this documentary, My Mistress is Warm. And then um, a stream of consciousness of lyrics. Uh, nothing rhymes in this song, which is, one of the first, I think, one of the first songs I've ever written where I even noticed myself, like, nothing is griping me because it's not rhyming. It was phrase after phrase after phrase. And I wrote it through the sentiment of um, almost like a ghost story again that, um, you know, her velvet cloak brushes by my face. She's here again. So it could be the man, he could be thinking of her or she really is there. And um, she, my mistress is warm to my touch. She's in my mind again. Uh, I can touch her I, if it's my thoughts or maybe I felt that she brushed by me, you know, um, whether she and, and, and the lyrics were just a stream of consciousness. Like I've come many miles to see you here. I've come a great distance. And um, uh, and I have to say that the lyrics were um, Shakespearean feelings to mm. me just pure feelings of um romance romance um but a little bit a longing romance um but again i'd seen this wonderful documentary on um how how shakespeare would was really the first theatrical wow. <laughs> producer see that's just another example of your homework just paying off with a great song thank you Mark. well that was the album and let me just tell you um, i remember the first time i played this all the way through it was actually in my car when i was leaving your house when i remember you, when you had given yeah. it to me and it was it was phenomenal it was it's such a great listen especially when you're driving and i i tend to drive late at night coming back from your yeah. place and stuff and uh and it's just I I've just had a thought. lot of people say that to me that the music to think that my music is great to drive to it's probably because I write most of it in the car <laughs> but um, I think years ago Peter Gabriel wrote me a letter after he'd heard House of Stone Light and he said your, your music is he was, I think he was driving through the Chilean mountains uh, and he, on tour and he just said um, it's wonderful music to listen to while you're while you're driving, while you're while you're in transport, while you're moving, uh, you know. You, you know what I think it is. For me, when I listen to music like that, especially your music, I think it's it's like it 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 has this emotional response where you can almost just allow yourself to be open to be emotional. And when you're driving, you're kind of an autopilot anyhow. You're driving, and so it, it's just a it's it. It's just a really wonderful place that like wraps you up and you, you have all these different emotions and, and it just really helps push you along. And, and this conjures up – you triggered something in my memory really that um, I lived in Southampton and I used to always want to be in a, in a good band. But my bands that I joined were in different parts of the country. There wasn't a music industry in Southampton. So I was always driving to Oxford, always driving to Bristol, always driving to London, then returning home after doing some gigs or trying to get an audition and my drives back then 
were uh, in England would be two to three hours. And I'd have in the car Steve Miller. Mm-hmm. I'd have in the car Genesis. Eight tracks back in those days. But I lived off of those tapes, cassette tapes. I listened to Fleetwood Mac. I'd listen to Earth, Wind & Fire. I'd listen to Doobie Brothers. But on the drives, uh, on the drives before I did my auditions or played with the band, Hmm. So I think even back in those days when I was, you know, 18 or 19 uh, with the bass in the back of the car and the amplifier, the main thing for me was that I could play music on the journey to where I was going. I, yeah. I couldn't imagine doing the drive, yeah. you know. Um, so I think it, it was in my blood to, um, you know, uh, all these years was, was that driving um, <laughs> and formulating Ideas, because I really believe it's not so much in the studio that it all happens. I believe it's happening for me in my head. The songs are happening before I even go in to to the studio, you know, without you really knowing it, because it is a mysterious um, formula how these songs appear. But but most of my songs, I really truly believe, as I could be driving down the road um, listening to, let's say... um, in years ago, Steve Miller, the Joker. You know, by the time I get to Oxford, which is a two-hour drive, I'm getting out of the car with that groove of the Joker in my head and yeah. how the bass sounds. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? It's uh, absolutely it, it, that's how I think I fed myself, yeah. and I've been doing that all the years ever since. You know, I mean, coming here before we did the interview, right? Um, I've already worked out in my bag before I come to you what yeah. what CDs are the new songs. I have to play myself in the car, <laughs> coming in and going back because it's a forty mile, forty mile drive. You know, so I can't imagine. I think all my songs basically are written from. Um, I think I think for a lot of people, you, you're writing the songs before you hit the studio in your head without knowing it. You know. Well, hey, uh, this has been a great, great. So the key, uh, sorry, the key to being a songwriter is. You must learn to drive. Let's <laughs> get in your car. Get your license. Well, hey, listen, we had uh, some of your fans. Uh, they um, posed some questions. Uh, I, I have I, I have a fan? Yeah, we have. Yeah, you have uh, four fans. They just changed their names to uh, different people. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to go over some of these. Some of them you've, you've actually already answered, but we'll still. Uh, yeah. We'll still. Um, I've got to say thank you to everybody who wrote in. And sent in these these questions. I've had chance to look at them, you know, the week before we did this, and uh, I've got a few notes in my in my hand here because uh, the questions were so good. All right. Well, let's start with the uh, with the question number one. That's from Pete, um, and uh, Pete, I believe, said, "What song off the album has the most meaning for yourself, and why?" And uh, as I mentioned before, it's got to be for emotional reasons. Golden. Um, purely for what I said before, um, it was a song that was written for healing and and uh, you know to honour a very deep friend. So, Golden Pete is the song that means the most to me off of this record. Let's go to the next one. Okay, this is from Rebecca, and Rebecca says um, the artwork uh, of houses of hotel. I said house stone light. Uh, <laughs> all my titles are the same. Um, uh, she was. She said, I, and "I was thrilled when I found out that you created it yourself. What are the meanings behind the various creatures and objects that appear in the artwork?" Well, you know, it, um, 
for me, it's a very personal drawing, of course. I don't want to sound too esoteric about it, but the, uh, the figure uh, lying down on the hotel is basically a meditating figure. Um, I, wrote, I, I drew this painting thinking about what was most important to me, and it was uh, peace of mind. And um, so the figure in the center is basically um, every man. Um, and a person basically reclining and meditating and trying to get in touch with the other elements which are in the picture, which are nature. Um, I love animals, so you're going to see them in there. Um, and I think the communication between humans and animals is very real. And as you can see, the horse is bending down to the, the main figure, and that's supposed to re represent um, the communication of the animal world with the human world. Um, there's been a lot of temptations in my life, so the serpent is definitely appearing at the bottom of the picture, and the serpent is, as uh, somebody has also mentioned, uh, spotted the key that's in the picture, and that's um, the key to um, beating temptation. To me, is um, understanding your own mind. Um, and also the picture of the uh, nature scene in there with the like the little road and the trees and everything is a reflection of where I came from because I came from a very, very rural part of England and it's romance. Um, we've got the pyramid in there and that relates a great deal to what I grew up absolutely loving with Earth, Wind of Fire and Maurice White had a huge influence on me um, with his, his uh, spiritualism. So I think the rest of it is just that I did try to do my best in a picture, uh, no more about it. Um, Hotel of the Two Worlds relates to me because of, as, I said, as I've said before, um, it's um, the, the two sides of a person's character, for, particularly for me, you know, the dark side, the bright side, the happy side, the sad side. Um, I always think that there's a duality in, in us. and But to really get to the nuts... Uh, and the the real meaning of this picture is I love painting, I love drawing, and I went to art college as a kid, and so I had a great big <laughs> pad open for me to do, draw on, and I went for it. And then I had enough confidence to show this picture to my manager, and she said, ah, oh, it's pretty good, why not? And so um, we went for it. And I'm actually, I'm, that's one of the things I'm most proud about, that I was able to get, you know me, Mike, you come, yeah. to, you come to my house, I'm, I do a lot, lots of little bits of artwork around the, around the edges, so it was um, great to have my artwork come out. I was surprised you got the tattoo on your chest of that album cover. Sorry, mate, what did you say? I'm going deaf. What did you say? <laughs> that you got that tattooed on your chest. Yeah, well, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it didn't come out too good. I mean, it's a quite a complicated picture. And when the, t when the guy tried to do it on my chest, it was bloody painful. <laughs> Too many colours to put on your chest. Uh, right. <laughs> and I had to shave my chest to do it. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the next one. Okay, now I hope I'm saying the name right here. It's Kayle Rock or Kayla Rock, would you say? Would, is that, yeah, pretty good. Okay. Where is the Celtic man? And I imagine that... Um, uh, the Kale Rock means in the in the picture on the well, well I didn't include him in the picture because he's everywhere else. He's uh, on the website and he's on the album, all the other album covers, and uh, so the Celtic man is always with me. And uh, and I will admit to having the huge tattoo of the Celtic man on my back, not on my chest. <laughs> He is on my back. But no, the Celtic man still survives. He's not on the album cover, but he is uh, on the website. And Joseph um, asks, he says, 
this is what Joseph says, congratulations on an amazing new album and successful launch. Um, there's now a no vacancy sign flashing outside the Hotel of the Two Worlds. When I first had a chance to listen to Golden, I was instantly drawn to the story behind the music and production of the song. The, bridge, the bridge's soaring vocals are just beautiful. Thank you, Joseph. Joseph's question is, when you were composing the music and lyrics to Golden, do you remember the moment when you felt the song was for Mike Shipley? The integration of In the House of Stone and Light was both special and touching. When did this idea come into play? Did you find this song a special way to heal from the loss of your friend as a listener? I never wanted that fade to end because I suppose it means we all have to say goodbye. Yet, Song for Ruth has shown us love never says goodbye. Thank you, Joseph. But um, as I said, Golden was written um, the day that Mike called me uh, and told me that uh, Mike Shipley had passed. So... um, the song was written about him instantly. It wasn't a song that appeared, uh, and then I, I made it suit the situation. Um, so uh, that's the way the song appeared. It appeared on the day that um, I needed to heal from such terrible news. Um, Tamara, is that how you say the name? Tamara. Tamara. I, you know what? I butch, butcher names all the time. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a butcher here. <laughs> you're asking the wrong person. I'm, I'm being told <laughs> from, the, from the distance, Tamara. Um, and Tamara says, hello, Martin and Mike. Uh, first, let me say that I'm crazy over the, the, this new CD. Love Resurrection is a great tune. It is a cross between folk, southern church, and Motown music good time feel. My question is, was Motown heavy on your mind when you wrote this? This is a very catchy tune. Nicely done. Yes, it was. As, uh, as I pointed out, I was listening while lying in the bath. I was listening to my iPod in the distance and on came some incredible Motown. And I just had the desire to try and emulate that wonderful, wonderful spirit of that music. So you're right. Motown triggered me with that song. Mary. Uh, ask this is there something special you do when you aren't inspired to create but you're on a deadline for a song well i've just answered that as well i get in the bath um when i get frustrated i get into a very hot bath i bring a cup of tea uh up there into the bathroom and i play music from a distance Uh, i put it onto uh, my ipod i don't play it too close i i have the music playing vaguely uh, away from me so that i'm still in touch with our music and and slowly I come out of the dread, the pain, the desperation of not being able to write, which drives me crazy. I haven't had that feeling for a long time because I haven't put myself under a deadline like I used to have to do in the 80s, writing for films and stuff. That used to drive me crazy. Um, um, it's, I, I always need to take a, a break. A break is necessary. And the break for me usually, though is only about 10 feet away from the studio. It's in a hot <laughs> bath. And that's how I soothe myself because I get into a bit of a state if I can't get a song going. Um, TC says, I'm curious t- to know the meaning behind each of the com- uh, components in the artwork. Um, most specifically, the mystical symbols and the key within the triangle pyramid. Aha, uh-huh, you spotted it. I also noticed that not only does the central figure resemble da Vinci's illustrated man, but resembles your own Celtic man as well, hmm. with the same outstretched arms and separate quadrants and the various animals. Was, um, what, was that the intent or just coincidence? And why is he sideways? Well, these are, that's a great question, but I wasn't copying da Vinci. I was really trying to just do a man lying 
down meditating, um, slowing down life. Um, and that's why he's parallel. Um, but it's a good point. Um, I noticed after I did it that the arms were outstretched and, it, and there's a lot of um, closeness to the Celtic man. I, don't, I can't say that I was following that, but I think those coincidences are sometimes just meant to happen. Um, but the key, as you've just pointed out, I didn't think anybody would spot that. So you've got really good eyesight and it means i must have painted it pretty well because it looks like a key um <laughs> but the key to me is just it's me i'm always trying to uh, uh, get peace of mind and i'm always trying to keep a steady course and not go offline so the key to me is meditation and prayer and um staying straight and looking at all the positive things in life and trying to remind myself of that so that's the key that i have to remind myself to do all the time meditate 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 and slow life down so that's what the key's about she has another one um yes another one from tc says i love the way that you've come full circle throughout this album by referring back to lyrics from earlier songs is there a significance to the repeated lyrics from count on me and kindred spirit where both songs inspired were both songs inspired by someone special in your life or simply by a similar theme well it's simply by a similar theme um a lot of my songs are about um, recovery, healing. I'm proud of that. Uh, and the overtone really is about um, love. And uh, when I say count on me and repeat myself quite a lot in songs, it's because um, I do. It's because um, those are common, powerful things to me. And uh, But there's... But I, um, I think that's a mass coincidence, and I wish you hadn't made everybody aware <laughs> that I keep on using the same lyrics in all my songs. <laughs> You're not forgiven for that, TC. That's it. <laughs> Angelica, In the Light of Dawn, is another song that has really impressed me. When I hear it, I think of peace, freedom, and friendship, brotherhood. What were your thoughts when you wrote the song? Um, and let me say that I love all the songs. Congrats to such a fantastic album. Thank you very much. You've got uh, some deep fans here. Yeah, I'm very, very, very lucky. Thank you, Angelica. Well, I, I think I mentioned it when Mike was playing Light of Dawn. Um, Light of Dawn was supposed to be a purely um, uh, an inspirational song of, um, in a way, I didn't mention this before, but it's a, a pat patriotic song. It has a lot of overtones about America because of the what I was reading at that time, you know, the great speeches by the great presidents, including Lincoln. So, And because of 9-11, um, I think Light of Dawn appeared as... Um, one of those kinds of songs that I like to write, which is um, we have to get up next day and the sun has to rise. Uh, there's no other way about it. We've got to keep going. So that's really where that song originated from. And thanks again, Angelica. Uh, I think I'm saying the right name here. I may need help. Um, Deanna? Deanna. Mr. Page. We well, don't have to call me Mr. Page. You can, <laughs> you can call me. Really? You make me call you Mr. Page. Yeah, well, you know, you need to. Um <laughs> Just don't call me Marty. That's something I've never liked. I feel like, I, you know, when I first came to America, they used to call me Marty, and I, I thought Marty. I sound like a golfer. You know, hey Marty, hey, Marty. are you going to play with a four iron here, Marty? That is awesome. You know, I thought, oh, don't ever. <laughs> oh man, but Marty, you do really, Marty. I don't I'm going to have to call I, you Marty at least a couple times. Um, but I'll accept Mr. Page from Deanna. Um, I'm sure this has been asked before. Um, but who or what has been your main inspiration for your songwriting? Who was your biggest influence when you first began your musical style? Um, will you ever go on tour? That's a great question because 
I wrote notes down on, on this because there's been several stages. At the beginning of my career, it was as a boy, not I wasn't in music, but I grew up uh, with the Beatles in the 60s. So when I was 10 years old, the Beatles were on TV and they got under into my bloodstream. Then I fell in love at 16 and 17 with the bass guitar, and that was soul music. So it was uh, Quincy Jones, Earth, Wind & Fire, Parliament, Bootsy, Louis Johnson, um, Rufus, all these bands, um, all the soul bands when I was 16 or 17. Um, a little bit after that, I fell in love with uh, progressive music. So um, I suddenly went into that uh, Genesis big time. Genesis uh, and uh, Jethro Tull, um, uh, all those bands that had a uh, romance about them and, and old English. So I fell in love with, through 18 up to about 22, I was progressive was an influence for me. Then when I had my record deal with Qfield, that was the beginning of the 80s. I uh, must have been coming into my 20s or whatever. And uh, it was um, Ultravox. Thompson Twins, Tom Dolby big time. Tom Dolby really influenced me as a songwriter. Prefab Sprout, Blue Nile. Um, uh, Robert Palmer, because of his great um, techno album, which I, uh, goes underrated, Clues. And then um, I came, came into my own as a songwriter past Q-Feel, and that became Elton John. Elton John is my biggest influence as a harmonic songwriter and luckily working with Bernie Taupin um, I think it went very deep into me that kind of Elton relationship I'd grown up loving Elton as much as the Beatles and I think he's one of the most underrated songwriters of all time so the the people that influenced me as songwriters uh, from that period on to now have been Elton Peter Gabriel, because of um, his emotional stance. Um, Sting, I love Sting's work as well. I love great classical choral work that influences a lot of my um, hymnal, hymnal uh, uh, emotions in my songs and effects. Would that be Taverner, Arvo Pert, and Gorecki, Henrik Gorecki, the Soulful Song, Symphony 3. So... That's been in my late, you know, my, my writing up to this point. You know, as I can say, I came into real writing. Uh, I, I knew what I was doing as a writer and became quite good at it, I suppose. Um, was Elton, Big Time, Peter Gable Sting, and everybody else I said. And of course, I bumped into Robbie Robertson, uh, who influenced me great and had a, had a, a profound influence on me on taking time on songs and making everything count from an emotional level. That was very influential. The other huge two influences to me were Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire, who taught me how to get the best out of musicians in a studio, to let the music appear and to speak for itself and not to force the issue. And then Bernie Taupin taught me, by working with him, how to search for the best words... Um, those three are the most biggest influences on me uh, while I, uh, while I, when I was in, in Los Angeles. So um, I hope that explains everything. Um, that's how my progression as a songwriter, I think, 
went. Now, I hope I'm saying the right name for the next person. Wait, no, no. You didn't – will you ever go on tour? Oh, good question. Um, that was your second question. Boy, um, I, there's no plans, of course, because I'm, a, I'm on a little independent label of my own and um, it's, it, my songs don't get pushed to radio stations because I'm a small little village independent radio sta- uh, re- record, play- record company. So, um, but, you know, you, ne- you can never say never. I mean, I feel fit enough and strong enough and healthy enough to have a go at it again. And who can say, you know, um, sometimes I get that little tingle down my spine that I'd love to do it. But there's not really that demand for me to be out there. It's very, very expensive. Um, that's a, that's the reality of it. But um, I'm still fit and healthy and raring to go. So I can't say it won't happen. We just have to keep our fingers crossed. Mike, Mike will go out with me again. Hey, man, that. I've been pushing for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you just cost a lot to take on the road, <laughs> mate. You know? And all the drinking you do and the drugs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's hard. It's hard hey, to take you out there. The good thing with technology nowadays is it's it's doable at a... Here we go. I know he's going to stay. Mike's been working on me for a long I time. I have been working on you, but yeah. you know what? We'll, we'll leave that for another time. You know, um, so many surprising things have happened to me as a songwriter. I can't say that that might not happen again. So fingers crossed. Um, let's see. Um, now, the next name, I hope I said this right, is Burnt or Burned. Um, Burnt Laurent. Um, what other artists inspire you outside of music? Well, I thought that was a lovely question because I never really get asked that. And I did take some notes on that one, which I, I just want to have a quick look at. As you can hear, all the papers. That's like 19 pages. Yes, well, you know, I've got to... At my age, <laughs> you, have to, <laughs> you have to have notes, you know. <laughs> so, in art, it would be William Blake, Turner, Constable, Casper, David, uh, Frederick, uh, Whistler... I like the work of Matisse, of course, and Magritte, um, uh, Waterhouse, and, and Edvard Munch. I enjoy their paintings hugely because they're so um, moody and dark. Great poets. Um, well, Pablo Neruda's, Neruda has always affected me um, since I wrote Me Morena. Walt Whitman, Keats, Byron, Wordsworth, all the romantic poets I'm obsessed with. And I like um, Baudelaire's work. Um, he influenced my lyrics on soul print. A great deal. Um, and again, in art, I like, um, you know, uh, mostly the romantic stuff. Um, William Morris and Edward Byrne-Jones uh, from the Victoria age. Literature, it's got to be Shakespeare, of course, um, and Dickens. Um, now I love reading an, an, an author called John Gray, who's had a couple of brilliant books out um, that have uh, wonderful, philo- um, wonderful tones of... Um, expressing life um, as a philosopher, a modern philosopher. His name is John Gray, a book called Silence of the Animals and um, uh, Stray Dogs is fantastic. And my favourite philosopher, who I think is an artist, is Schopenhauer. So uh, rather dark, but I think he's a he's a wonderful philosopher. So that's that. Um, hey, that- I, I have to give a shout-out, though. On, uh, what? When you introduced me to Turner... I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I, I knew a little William bit. William Turner. Yes. But when you started showing me that book yeah. on Turner, I... I yeah. He, had a, he just had a, a wonderful exhibition um, at the Getty. And um, I couldn't miss that. You know, just to see his paintings in your lifetime is... Uh, again, you know, he was a beginning, beginning, really for an Englishman, the beginning of, of great expressionism. I mean, he was a beginning before everybody started to, to really um, go into that place where you painted yeah. emotions... 
more than you did express what you saw. I can see your music in some of his paintings. I mean, once wow. you once you opened Thank up you. that, uh, once you showed me that, Thank you. I was like, oh, it makes sense. Thank so. you. Uh, you you saying that? Mark. Yeah, it's That's... blurry and a little out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> foggy, foggy work, foggy. Yes, and everything's at sea. <laughs> no, it's it's brilliant. It, uh, Thank you, mate. I really appreciate that. Just you saying that's a big deal. Um, Joseph asked another question here. Um, Hi, Martin. How come Mike is still your friend? Wow, <laughs> that's pretty perceptive. Um, <laughs> I, I might have, have I have I missed one? I've you skipped missed, one. Have I? You missed Robert. Oh, Robert. Sorry, Robert. I'm sorry so much, Robert. Um, Robert Burgess Good. And um, Joseph, you have to wait a bit longer. I would be interested to know in what order you wrote, recorded the songs on the album, and at what point you felt the theme began to develop. Did you have the idea of what the album would be before you started recording, or did the theme present itself somewhere along the way? Well, Robert, it presented itself somewhere along the way, not straight away. Whenever I start um, an album, I don't really know I'm starting an album. I just write songs, and um, suddenly they start to stick together like glue, and I play them a lot in my car, and I suddenly, as I'm playing them in the car, go, these stick together really well, and I think I'm onto an album. Um, I didn't really write Hotel of the Two Worlds planning to write it. Um, An album appeared. And halfway through the record, halfway through... As I said to Mike, when Light of Dawn was being worked on, I suddenly thought, this is a gospel kind of soul record, and, I, and I'm looking back to um, my heritage of when I was in the South. So it happened halfway through. Songs like Golden and Strong and My Mistress is Warm seemed to just come out of the edges of this other theme I had. They just seemed to be... Um, pieces of work which uh, still worked with the album but weren't really um, constructed to be the gospel kind of whole a whole gospel record but the answer to that is um, I can't remember what songs I started first on this record I really can't Um, I know that Kindred Spirit was written a long long time ago and then I as I said I pulled it back up and worked on it again so probably Kindred Spirit is the beginning of this but it was written in 1922 but you also you first know, world war you also when you write sometimes you you unconscious well <laughs> but you play you play different songs at different states for, yes, it's not yeah. like you finish one and go on to the next no. sometimes you you multitask on on the different that's songs that's a very very good point mike very good point um which i tend to forget and that's happening at now at this point i don't i now more than ever in my ever in my life i used to always start a song stay on it finish it knock it into the ground wear it out now i tend to do bed work move on bed work move on come back see if it's worthwhile and and now i've said this to many writers when i've had the chance to talk to them um at at colleges and everything is that i know how to edit myself now and when you're young you just finish a song you know i used to write 40 songs a year and 39 were crap and one was good now i'll tend to write maybe eight in a year but there's been six or seven started that never got finished i now can almost tell uh if i should finish something i'll do a really quick work on it and then i'll listen back and go this is worthwhile or this needs to be thrown in thrown out so yeah uh and another thing this is good about technology in the old days when we were working on analog i used to have to stay on that board and on that tape and not have the board change so you'd finish that song because of the technology it took me a while 
uh, as you turned me on to a Pro Tools, that I could skip between songs very quickly. And I had a great difficulty in dealing with that because I thought I was almost letting the song down by moving on to another file. It was like, oh, God, I've, will it ever be the same? You know, so I had to teach myself that you could come between, you could work on three songs in a day. That's the wonder of, uh, of Pro Tools. But um, now I would say... Um, an album grows organically, not like when I was a young boy. Um, each song was, the hell was knocked out of it, you know. Even if it was a bad song, I'd work two years on it, you know, because I didn't know. Uh, now I know how to edit myself much, much better. Um, so let's get to Joseph now. Um, hi, Martin. Is Mike still your friend? He's still asking <laughs> that question. I'll add another question if you have time. Well, we, we do. Um can you break down the method of recording the lead vocals, harmony, backing vocals to my Kindred spirit? The vast array of vocals on Kindred make it one of my favourite performances on the new album. There is a power in the performance that cannot be not denied by the listener. Thank you, Joseph. Um, uh, Kindred spirit um, is a bit like House of Stone and Light. There's, they're, they're kind of brotherly songs in a, in a strange kind of way i think in a way kindred spirit was probably first started around the same time i started Hot uh, house of stone and light hmm. um i believe i was that it might have been and that was a time when i really um did multiple choral vocals um answer vocals it was a period when i'd, I'd like to answer myself do ba do multiple background vocals i was learning about harmony vocals joseph at that time um House of Stone and Light was a major record for me because I was it was my first solo record and I was working at home and I'd seen Robbie Robertson work in at the village on his own solo record and and experiment over long periods of time. So Kindred Spirit, why there's so many vocals on it and why it's so um so full is because I was experimenting and I enjoyed putting harmonies on it. And it as I said to Mike earlier, it's a kind of bridge over troubled water song to me even though that might sound strange to people it's kind of a, 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 a simon and garfunkel song i don't know cordially you can take take away the rhythm and you could sing it and you could hear it as a kind of to me paul simon kind of hymn and paul simon wrote a, a, a lot of amazing songs uh with garfunkel um that had that kind of to me um spiritual hymnal english choral gospel feel now also with these vocals which i, I think is because they're because of my heritage with soul music i'm singing even without knowing it gospel um chants i'm answering myself i'm imagining i'm a huge choir mm -hmm. and it's only me in the garage so <laughs> and a hundred tapes um so it's me doing everybody's parts it's me imagining i've got a choir but i haven't so that's where all that comes from joseph me imagining there's a thousand of me in a room did you record the vocals do you record your backups in the owl's nest or do you record them in your control room in the main room? um i do i do them i do them um both um uh, to give it the texture. Yeah, I, 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 mainly I'll. What, what's great about um, actually recording in the new studio? You, well, not the owl's nest, but the studio you, you put for me, Mike, in the living room when I, when I moved into the other room, is that it has a wooden floor. Right. That was a that was a godsend to find out about because I I tend to use the microphone at a distance when I'm doing background vocals, and I like to hear the wood floor um, in the background blend. So I will move away from the microphone like this. As yeah. you can hear, I'm a million miles away. Can you hear me? 
Now I'm getting closer. Yes, anyway, that was the effect. And so I would do background vocals in both rooms, sometimes in the owl's nest, because the owl's nest is really a garage and it has a concrete floor. I would leave the microphone 10 feet away in the doorway and I'd go back into the garage on the concrete and sing from a distance uh, and stomp on the floor like this. And I leave all that stomping in. Uh, And on Kindred Spirit, Delta... um, a lot of the songs um, that have a funk feel to them, I'm stomping on the floor as I sing because I think that's got that kind of rootsy, rural yeah. thing. Well, the Owlsness has a really nice reverb yeah. because of the concrete floor. And, and your control room... And it sounds like a church. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then the the main room where you record and where you also sing, it's not dead. It has a nice little lively thing about it. Yeah, yeah. Know? I'm very, very lucky, very lucky. With the, with the wooden floor. Very lucky because of, I I. Th- I thought that the room might not sound as good as it does. But the great thing about the, as we'll say this again for the audio file people, is that the owl's nest is concrete and a a solid floor. So everything sounds different in there. You go into the the, the control room and it's a wooden floor that has got a crawl space underneath it. So when you stomp, you get another drum. And uh, the wood resonance, for some reason suited my voice there's even a lot of glass in that room because i look out the window and it doesn't sometimes i i aim it at the glass and i go back and sing by the glass and hmm. and it makes you sound like you see i'm doing all the vocals and if i'm doing all the vocals i sound like myself all the time so i have to sing at, in space and against um different surfaces right i have to pretend i'm somebody else and it's a different and that those different services and the distance from the mic makes my voice sound slightly different in the blend of the vocals. That's why, Joseph, on Kindred Spirit, the answers I'm doing, um, you can accept that it's not actually the lead vocalist. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Even I can tell that I, I can get by by thinking that somebody else singing those parts. So that's how I achieve that, by um, faking it, basically, and believing I'm a choir. Um, next question from Matt. I love the soul and spirit in all of your songs, but I am intrigued by what inspired All Too Human. What a cool groove. It's addicting. Thank you, Matt. Well, uh, again, I think I've explained this, that this was a, primarily a groove song that first sounded a, a touch too much like Michael Jackson. And, and, and as I was working on it, I fell in love with the groove of ZZ Top and um, blues uh, stomping music. I mean, there was a great period in blues music when they just stomped, uh, and uh, that's what I did with All Too Human. And I played, um, as Mike pointed out, live drums, live side sticks in the Owl's Nest, where it's very ambient. And so the track got this wonderful hump about it. Even though it's a drum machine uh, starting the song, there's a lot of looseness around it. And um, and I p- tried to play the guitar in a very loose, funky way. And that's how that sort of groove built up. Um, but All Too Human was inspired primarily by trying to get a kind of Robert Palmer, funky, uh, half-tech, half-rural um, funk groove. So it's a mixture of me, Robert Palmer, and ZZ Top in a small house in Encino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another question, by, and this is the last one from Angelica. You are still a friend of Mike Rodriguez. <laughs> wow. They really honor this, Mike. They are amazed that we are still That's right. together but for look, 20 years. The second part was why 
Is he still a... F- okay, forget it. <laughs> so Angelica says, um, I read that you have one of my favourite songs on the new album, I Got Faith in You, written already in 1992. A song about things, times and moments which most of us can understand from our own experience. It took over 20 years until you decided to sing this song yourself. Was there a special reason to wait so long or was there a special occasion to do it now? Well, I, I think... You might be, Angelica, um, confusing that song, I Got Faith in You, with um, My Kindred Spirit, because My Kindred Spirit um, was definitely recorded and written a long, 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 long time ago. I Got Faith in You had been building up, uh, you know, I don't think as long as that, um, and it was quite a, a recent finish to it. But um, so I think that the oldest song on this record is uh, Kindred Spirit. Um, but this song, I Got Faith in You, um, was, a, uh, was basically, as I said to Mike, um, a feeling that I had, a personal song, really, that uh, what I believe in is really what I can see. And that's um, uh, usually a person. Um, so my faith was in um, you know, the love of another person, the caring of another person, uh, friendship. So I've Got Faith in You is basically a human talking to another human and um, getting strength from that. That bond from that power, that bond. And that is all the questions we have time for tonight. <laughs> that was... Um, and I, and I, I just, just want to say again, um, I apologize if I got any of the names wrong in the way I'm um, saying them. But as Mike says, we're all allowed to be butchers at, uh, now and then. <laughs> um, but I want to thank everybody for those great, great questions. And um, the fans, all of you out there that are listening to this, you've been pretty amazing with the release of Hotel. Um, you've made it uh, seem very worthwhile. And I thank you very much for that incredible launch and support. And I hope uh, the music still uh, turns you on. Thank you. And I am still friends with Mike. <laughs> hey, what a, that was, this was fun. That was great. That man. was like, yeah. okay, just so you know, we, we did not stop. We went top yeah. to bottom. How long did we do? That? How long did it go? It's uh, almost two hours. Wow. Well, will people listen for two hours? I That's doubt the it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it. we put the questions at the end, <laughs> so that everybody has to wait to the end. Um, you see, well, I, I really enjoyed it, Mike, and uh, oh, you know, thanks for for giving me the opportunity. Oh no, come on, you're, yeah. you're my brother, as they say, and ah, we've been together for a while. And uh, I'll tell you what, half the fun of being your friend is just to see the music. I just love, love the fact that uh, you know I get to to hear some of this stuff early and it's it's great and and i know when i first heard this album um it it really spoke to me it was really amazing i played it like three times in a row and i just could not believe how awesome it was thank you buddy uh you've been a a real spark through all these records and people tend to forget well i don't but uh the the studios were basically uh conceived by you so this music comes out of uh you uh putting me in a good habitat to create yeah it's also if you think about it you know we're moving on to the new space the yeah. new setup this was the last oh i'm, 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 I'm amazingly one. excited about it on the, where we're, what we're about to do on yeah. that other one yeah well hey thank you so much if you're still listening <laughs> um i hope you've enjoyed this and martin thank you so much for joining us and uh you know just talking about your album and and really getting into the nuts and bolts of it and um if you have any comments or questions you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com that's audio at nowcastnetwork.com but you know what you can go on his facebook page He's 
he's really active on Facebook, and he uh, he answers questions. Like, and there may even be a photo on there of the Hotel of the Two Worlds on my chest. <laughs> the, the tattoo may be revealed. It may be. I'm not sure because I'm not sure it really turned out too good, but I may reveal it. I'll tell you what. Um, and for everybody out there, and uh, just trust me on this. You ain't heard nothing yet, all right? That's all I'm going to just say. I'm just going to end it right then and there and just leave it. But you have not heard anything yet. It's only going to get better. All right, Pagey Boy. Thank you, buddy. We're going to wrap this up, and um, we will catch you next time. And you can also catch us on our normal podcast where we have all the cast of characters. And Martin, you'll be joining us again soon on that one. You bet. All right. So uh, for myself and Martin, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>